you kind of always want to be on a podium at a race or you always want to be at the front of races at the big ones and you kind of don't want that imposter syndrome that's how I feel even now I think a little bit is every time I feel like I have to make sure I'm there to demonstrate that I'm good enough That's Tom Bosworth, British racewalker. He holds six British records and three world records, one of which is the world record racewalking mile time, five minutes, 31 seconds. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't run a mile in five and a half minutes. Tom is heading to Tokyo to compete in his second straight Olympic Games. And yet, as you just heard, he still struggles to believe he's good enough. Somewhat ironically, this is only something Tom started struggling with after he'd proven he was good enough. Growing up, he was never a star racewalker. He just enjoyed it. But as he got better and his results improved, including a sixth place finish in Rio in 2016, expectations grew too. And as expectations grew, so did Tom's self-doubt. This is unfortunately how imposter syndrome works. Maybe you've experienced a similar cycle. You've been recognized for being good at something, and all of a sudden that recognition puts pressure on you. You wonder if you're good enough, if maybe you've tricked someone, and it's only a matter of time before they find out you're a fraud. As you'll hear from Tom, and from a sports psychologist he works closely with, Dr. Andrew Manley, Olympians, despite being elite athletes, struggle with these very same feelings. In fact, because they're such high achievers, they might be even more susceptible to them. In Tom's case, they derailed his race walking for a while, and even sent him into a depression. And I should note, as a trigger warning, that in this interview, Tom also talks briefly about contemplating suicide. Today's episode is about how he got back on track and found his way to the 2020 Olympics. It's about overcoming the weight and pressure of expectation that comes with any job, even if yours doesn't involve walking a mile in world record time. I'm Clay Skipper, and this is Smarter, Better, Faster, Stronger a GQ podcast that goes inside the minds of some of the world's top Olympians and their coaches, trainers, and psychologists. I'm hoping to figure out how, on a stage where everyone's at their physical peak, the world's top athletes get a mental edge. Today, we're hearing about the story of Tom Bosworth, a British racewalker. But before we do, racewalking? Isn't that the sport with, like, the hips? Yeah, it is. Here Tom explains. Racewalking is just as a bizarre event in England as it is in the States, I imagine. So the rules are we always have to maintain one foot on the ground at all times and the front leg has to land straight as well. So if you imagine when you're running, you'd use your leg to drive forward. There's a lot of power there and momentum. That's kind of taken away by that straight leg rule, which is why you get kind of a little bit more of the hip wiggle, which is quite stereotype I think about it and so on a race course which it might only be one or two kilometers because unlike a marathon we've got judges so that's why the course is really short so the, there'll be about eight judges watching us and if we get three red cards you're in the pit lane and then if you get a fourth red card you are disqualified. And so you would get a card either for not striking with a straight leg or for having a foot off the ground? Both feet off the ground yeah that's it. And each judge, they can only give you one card, just in case like a judge for some reason is a rival country or something you might be battling off with a competitor from their country, you know, or, or they might not like you, whatever. It can't just be a one judge. It has to be at least uh, one card from several different judges to make it fair and equal. The thing about the straight leg that strikes me is it, it seems like that would be almost painful to strike the <laughs> ground at a high tempo with a straight leg. Is it uncomfortable or what does it feel like? 
for me, I've been training, uh, or I joined uh, an athletics club when I was 11, so 20 years ago. So I've, uh, my body's got used to it. <laughs> but when you learn it, you're going quite slow. And so it doesn't have the same forces or speed going through your body. It becomes second nature, really. It's just a completely different movement style and pattern that that's learned. How do you train for that? What are you doing in the gym to train for the that sort of hip wiggle or the biomechanics of race walking? I... I think it's kind of a bit of a misunderstanding really with it. It's not done on purpose. It's done as a result of that straight leg, which is quite an unnatural movement, which immediately forces the hip up rather than out, rather than when you're running, you're just trying to send everything in a straight line and it's the legs that take the brunt of the work really. Whereas when we plant with our heel and we have that straight leg, it's it's torque kind of all the way up the hammies, up the hamstrings, into your bum, through your lower back as well. So it's keeping strong in the core, strong back, strong glutes and in the quads and the hamstrings to keep that balance there really without turning it into running exercises. The hip movement is kind of just a, an outcome of, of the technique. The technique doesn't just give race walking a different look. It also adds, as Tom mentioned, the threat of disqualification. In most racing sports, you need to get from A to B as fast as you can. In race walking, you have to go fast, but not so fast that you break technique. Tom says he likes this added challenge. So I think plenty of people let that sort of jeopardy of disqualification get to them and take away from their race a little bit. So it's another whole aspect, which is why I love it overrunning. That jeopardy of getting disqualified it's awful when it happens to you, but it's not because you're trying to purposely cheat. You might have a bit of a bad day or something, but it adds such an aspect to a race in comparison to running. And I've always said, I think I perform on race day better than I train. I can get more out of myself than my training would show. And I think my coach agrees with me there. And I think that's all down to my head being able to focus on the race and push myself that next sort of level and, and get the most out of my performance. And so you mentioned there you joined Athletics Club at age 11. So I'm curious how you got into it and what about race walking over, over running? Yeah, I mean, when I joined the club, my sister was there already. And so my mum just took me down as well. And I could either sit in the car and wait until she's finished or join a group as well. So I just kind of joined a generic kids sort of group at that age where you try a little bit of everything. And I really enjoyed the long jump, actually. And, and I was all right at running. And then I happened just to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to give this walking a go. And I just did it for fun and, and get out of my parents' hair, I imagine, give them a bit of a break. So uh, that's the only reason I did it. I never dreamt it could take me anywhere internationally or, or as a job even. And at what point did you realize, like, how did you figure out you were good at it? Or this might be something you were quite good at, even an Olympic level talent? Probably when I was like, maybe 18, 19, like it was quite late. I really just, I wouldn't always come last, but I mean, I was never any good at uh, even local races I did. It was purely for fun. And I think that's why I stuck at it for so long. My first coach just, he just found a reason to encourage me and he found positives in a race, even if I had the worst race going. He, he just would always find something positive to say about it. And I think that was why it became so ingrained in me. Like I, I was able to learn the technique. I was able to learn about the sport and athletics and enjoy it without any pressure. And so when I started getting good at it, it was more of, oh, this is exciting. Let's see where we can go and how good I can get rather than years of pressure already to get good. There was never any expectation there. For a long, long time, nerves never affected me because that aspect of 
where I was at the start of having no expectation. And so every time I stood on the race course, it was just like, well, let's just go see how good I can be. Not that worry and nerves of failing. Those low expectations would actually help Tom tremendously in the 2016 Rio Olympics. It was his first time competing on the Olympic stage. He was 26, and even though he'd just come off a year in which he set some new British records, he had a somewhat modest goal for Brazil. I just thought, I want to try and better where I finished the year before at the World Championships, which was 23rd. I was ranked about 27th in the world. So that was kind of where my head was at, like, let's see if we can get a top 20. But then, something funny happened. After 16 kilometers, a full four-fifths of the way through the race, Tom was winning. He was in first place. The gold medal was his to lose. Yet, his internal monologue didn't reflect that at all. As the race went on, I wasn't going, wow, could I win this? Or could I get a medal? It was going, oh, I could still probably hold on for this top 20. And I was leading the Olympics. (laughs) But my head was saying, just see how high up you can finish sort of thing. And I dropped back to, you know, in the end, the favourites, I guess, if you like, caught me with about 4K to go. And I dropped back to about ninth or 10th. And the thought went through my head then. And that's where I think everything changed. With about two laps to go, I thought, you've just led the majority of the Olympic Games, go back and see how high you can finish. And I took a person back every single time. And I just realized something needed to change in my mindset. And going forwards, it did. Instead of saying, oh, you might just achieve this. It was like, don't you dare put a limit on what you can do when you step into a race. Because if I had a different mindset, I might have finished in a medal position. I don't know. I don't know. I still broke a British record that day as well. So hindsight's a wonderful thing. But it demonstrates just how important your mindset is. and. Going forwards, I never have thought that again. After that surprise sixth-place finish, Tom had a newfound confidence. Unfortunately, that confidence brought something else with it too, expectation. Up to Rio, up to 2017 then, I never felt any pressure or expectation or had any sort of nerves that hindered me whatsoever. After that day, after those games, everything changed. Overnight in the UK, it was like, we were talking about athletics at major championships. Oh, could Tom Bosworth win a medal in the walks? That was then the conversation every single time I've raced. And it's very supportive. They just want to see you do well. But you also know that you kind of always want to be on a podium at a race or you always want to be at the front of races at the big ones. And you kind of don't want that imposter syndrome. That's how I feel. Even now, I think a little bit is every time I feel like I have to make sure I'm there to demonstrate that I'm good enough. Tom kept having success. About a year after Rio, he'd set the race-walking world record mile time. Five minutes, 31 seconds, in London, in front of a home crowd. Tom should have been flying high. But even as he kept having success on the track, the pressure and expectations, those kept building and really started taking their toll on Tom. All of it came to a head at the 2017 World Championships, again in London, just one month after he'd set the world record. So... I remember arriving at the race course that afternoon. I'd had a little bit of a knee injury off the back of that training before the World Championships, and I was definitely not myself. The stress then off the back of breaking a world record, expecting training to go well every single day into the build-up to the World Championships, and it wasn't. And these things were getting to me, and I was starting to disappear off training on my own. I would not be communicating with my coach. The pressure was just suddenly 
glaringly obvious that I'd never experienced before because nobody knew who I was nobody knew what race walking was and nobody ever dreamt I'd be up there at the front of races so this had changed so quickly I wasn't ready for it and then that race happened and I was leading the world championships we went through halfway in a really quick time the race was very fast and everything was going to plan and then within a lap I'd received all my red cards and been disqualified so it, the disqualification came out of the blue but it also showed that I'd pushed myself past my limit and it just felt like the crescendo it was meant to end with a medal that day this journey this sort of transformation of race walking putting my name on the map I built the cake and all I just needed was to put the cherry on the top and that was the medal that day and I quite literally just dropped the cake <laughs> and it all went smash in my mind and I just felt like all the level of effort from my coaches, my family, Team GB, everybody that had put their time and effort into me, I'd messed up and I'd let them all down. And it for me, it sent me into an absolute spiral, a complete and utter mess for the next probably year and a half. And it took me a long, long time to bounce back off it because it really was a, what was it all for? Why am I doing this? The enjoyment had literally disappeared overnight. And in the past, when I'd had disqualifications, when I was young, it was all part of the learning process. And I was mid-pack or last or it didn't matter. That was the first time a result of mine mattered in my mind. I mean, I could understand why that would be just crushing. And I mean, like you said, a year and a half, I'm sure that was just weighing so heavily on you. You've talked very bravely about how you were in a pretty serious depression after that, right? Yeah, I mean, what led was kind of, I guess, a lot of feelings that had been suppressed by the joy of everything I was experiencing on the track. And as an athlete, you kind of neglect everything else in your life. And that's something that's definitely changing nowadays in sport, especially in the UK, at least, is we're learning happy athletes are often successful athletes. And it was kind of all that anger then towards, oh, I missed so many events in my life and, and it all been what felt like for nothing. I'd forgotten about the journey I'd been on completely. And it was just overwhelming. If Tom the athlete, well, if that's taken away, what have I got? And, and three or four months later, I'd pushed away so many people close to me that I was then Tom the athlete. And then I was completely alone. And I realized I've got nothing going for me. And that's where it kind of led me to a stage in my life where I, I thought, it wasn't worth living at and, and, you know, it, it led me to several attempts on my own life. Tom gives all the credit for being able to come back from that place to his fiance Harry, who he proposed to after the 2016 Rio Games on Copacabana Beach. There was only one reason I got back from all that was Harry, who stuck by me throughout, no matter how badly I kind of treated him. And he just said, enough's enough, you need to get help. Do something about it because I can't stand by and come home one day to find you dead. I'm not doing that. This isn't a relationship. This isn't a life you're living. And I'm so glad he did that because if he hadn't, probably wouldn't be here today. I remember being stood on a motorway bridge just by our house, looking out over it and just, I can remember it because it doesn't even feel like me feeling so lost so alone helpless i pushed everything and everyone away from me and you can see why it's a real illness because it's like a spider web or something is crawled over your brain and absolutely that internal pressure is gripping onto your every movement you can't sleep you can't eat you can't be happy and you're guilty then for being happy every emotion 
So I think back now and it reminds me of where I was and how thankful that I'm not in that place now. Before the break, we heard Tom talking about the toll that pressure and expectation took on him in the days leading up to and after his disqualification from the 2017 World Championships. Dr. Andrew Manley is a sport and exercise psychologist that Tom's been working with since 2012. He says that despite their obvious and well-documented ability, many high achievers struggle with the exact same type of self-doubt that gripped Tom. What fascinates me is these people are so good, so brilliant, and yet the common thing you hear them talk about a lot is self-doubt, not being good enough, struggling to meet others' expectations. And there's something fundamentally human about that. And I think that's where it's so common that it's a really key part of high performance. And so say I'm in Tom's shoes or something, or say anybody is, and the expectations are just getting to be too much. If I were your client and I came to you and I was like, I got to do this podcast and everyone's expecting me to really crush it. The expectations may not be real, but they feel real. This podcasting thing used to be so fun for me. Now it's like, ugh, I just, I'm feeling crushed. Where would you start helping me? Okay, let's bring some of that fun back into it. Let's manage the pressure. Let's manage the expectations. What are some techniques or mechanisms that are maybe useful here? One of the things that I think has stood us in good stead quite a lot is something as simple as realistic goals and identifying those. People might think the goal setting is quite a, a simple thing. People talk about, oh, okay, I want to do that. Okay, I'll see that goal. And then I'll work back from that and say, what do I need to do to get to that? And yeah, it's a great principle. The thing that we always have to consider is saying it and seeing it is one thing. Actually doing the things, particularly over a long period of time to get there, is very, very challenging. And setting goals around it can help, but it's no magic bullet. But one of the things that Tom and I have certainly done is through me asking questions about some of the things he wants to achieve, we found it useful to break those down so that the things he wants to achieve don't become things that he sees as overwhelming. We talked about one, two, threes or ABCs. So, you know, his top goal, his number one target, his plan A, that was what he was looking for. That was what he was gunning for. But then we would also focus on not just the outcome, but the things he would be proud of having done. So the processes. So we'd be able to talk about, okay, well, even if I don't achieve that, I can measure success in the next rundown would be, okay, I've not maybe made this time, but I've done this well. So I might have kind of had a good technique and I've kind of worked on that and made sure that I get fewer cards and I'm not risked of DQ. Those are some of the specifics that we might put into that. It's not all or nothing. It's not all eggs in one basket to use one of those phrases. And now here's Tom talking about the value of that very ABC goal-setting strategy. Even if it's only a little race, I'm like, right, what do I want from this? What would be the dream outcome? What would be the happy with outcome? And what would be the outcome that I'm just about okay with? And that way, I walk away from a race having taken something from it, even if it was a little bit of a bad day. Look at it this way, I guess. If you go to work every single day and you, uh, you hate your job, you're really not enjoying it, and you can't take anything from it every single day, you're not going to last very long. You're going to quit that job and you're going to move on. And that's the exact same thing. I mean, athletes are the worst for it. They probably say they have three or four great moments in a 15-year career, which is really harsh like on themselves. But every athlete says it because they're so, so driven for success. 
And that's why you've got to have these A, B and C. So you can take something from what would be a bad day, where actually that C goal is reminding you that it's not a bad day. You've achieved something from it. As helpful as the strategy was for Tom when it came to his races, an even bigger unlock occurred when he realized that he could widen his perspective and apply this ABC strategy to things outside of his race walking. ABC strategy doesn't have to be an outcome. It can be about training, about daily life and the little things. A, have you made sure you've kind of given time for Harry? B, have you given time for yourself? And C, did you get out of the door and go training? And that's kind of how basic it got back to. And it was kind of the rebuild that way. And then if C was going well, if training was going well or not, you had A, which was you'd had a lovely weekend with Harry, or B, you did something that you enjoyed that day that wasn't athletics based. And suddenly, if the training or the racing wasn't going well, you had other things, you had other foundations in there. And that's kind of what helped me get back to where I am today. And the first biggest race after all of that was at the end of 2019, the World Championships in Doha in a desert. So one of the most extreme races we've ever done. And I looked around me and I saw so many nervous faces, everybody contemplating what we were about to go through 20 kilometers in extreme heat, fighting for a world medal. And I just thought, let's see where I can finish that original thought. And I smiled to myself and I was like, in 72 hours, I'm going to be back home with Harry and I cannot wait. So let's make this race mean something and enjoy it every step of the way. And I remember starting in last place on purpose because I knew how extreme the conditions were. And I ended up finishing seventh somehow that day. And I'd been plagued with injury and all the mental health stuff. And I just hugged my coach at the end of it, went home to Harry and just said, that's what it's meant to feel like. And that's what it's meant to be like. I can imagine those pressures that you were talking about in the 2017 World Championships, the television and expectations that could start creeping in again as Tokyo nears, right? And so what do you do now to protect against those pressures when it starts to feel like everything's closing in? Because I've had that on a smaller scale, and I think everyone has that feeling of pressure's getting too great, whether it's in work, whether it's in a relationship. And I'm just curious how you give some breathing room back in so that it doesn't close in on you. It's being able to take a step back and smile and laugh at whatever is happening and laughing at it or whatever might not be the right sort of response to the situation. But for me, if it's an injury or I feel the pressure's coming and, you know, as we build up to Tokyo, there's going to be so many things I can't control due to COVID and restrictions and testing. It's going to be so different to normal. I can look at that and go, oh, goodness me, it's going to ruin this. It's going to stop me from doing that. Or look at it as in there's absolutely nothing I can do about that. Everyone's going to be going through exactly the same thing. And there's probably going to be people stressing about it as well. I'm not going to be one of those. I'm going to go and find another athlete I know and go and chill with them or get on FaceTime and call Harry or go and watch something on Netflix or whatever it is to take my mind off it or those sorts of little things that if I'm at home, I'd go and see my family or I'd go and take the dog for a walk or something like that. You know, it's just keeping things as normal as possible helps me so, so much. And it's going back to those foundations. If you only have one foundation, your house or whatever is going to collapse. If you've got multiple foundations, then there's other bits that when you take it away is still holding it up. Yeah. I mean, I think when you were talking about Tom, the athlete, the thing that was sticking out for me is just letting your sort of work become your identity, especially in America. I think allowing our work to be your identity is a real problem we have. And the problem with that is then once you fail... It's not, oh, I dropped the ball at work today. Or as you said when you were racing, I dropped the cake today. It's, I am a failure. 
So it's sort of how can you untether that identity from the race you're racing or the work you're doing? I think that's a real challenge. Definitely. And you're right, especially the way social media is and the way we identify whoever we are nowadays. It's got to be more than just that one thing, because whether you're a sportsman or you do any job whatsoever, you want to be successful at that. You've got to have more to go home to or you've got to have more in your day. And it doesn't have to be big, major things. It could be before you leave, making sure you make your partner a cup of coffee or something like that to remind them that you're their fiance or their partner or their husband or wife. And that suddenly gives you another string to your bow. Tom curbed the pressure of expectation by realizing that his identity needn't be wrapped up just in race walking. That there are, as he beautifully put it, other strings to his bow. But as he mentioned earlier, he's also struggled with a different problem, imposter syndrome, or wondering if he's good enough. As someone who has worked with elite athletes, I wanted to get Dr. Manley's thoughts on how he would coach someone like Tom to navigate those feelings of self-doubt. He's a fantastic human being, yet he's humble. And I think with that humility, which I think is a great virtue, comes a sense of being susceptible to things like imposter syndrome. I doubt whether I'm good enough or should I even be here? I'm not going to have a clear answer for you in how you overcome that other than that I think it is something that from personal experience, but also from reading, learning about my my craft and my, my practice is I think it's heavily dependent and beneficial to get the individual or the group's perspective on why that might be their experience. So if someone's to say, I just don't feel worth what I'm getting, or I don't feel like I've earned this position, or I don't think I'm going to be good enough to achieve the goals I've set and the way people are talking about me. Okay, let's just try and understand that then. Explain that to me. Where's that coming from? And gradually you start to peel the layers back through asking questions about, okay, so let's again tune into the emotions that go alongside that. When do they happen? Where do they happen? Does it come about in certain environments? Because the environment that you're in will maybe trigger certain things. It might be certain people you have relationships with that might trigger certain things. It may be a memory of a previous experience. But Often an emotional state and a cognitive or thought state will trigger some of those things. Whether you believe it or not truly is the key thing here. I want to make sure to note the point Dr. Manley just said, because I think it's a really important one. Beating self-doubt is a matter of not believing the doubts that may creep up, not of stopping the doubts altogether. In fact, Dr. Manley says the type of doubts that we often characterize as imposter syndrome are so common and normal that maybe we shouldn't pathologize it as a syndrome at all. So imposter syndrome, for me, I think if it's a syndrome, it's something that's quite chronic. In many cases, I think we might describe self-doubts as imposter syndrome, and actually I don't think they are. I think they're just natural, commonly occurring doubts that every self-respecting human probably has when they're trying to achieve something that's important to them. And I think the first step is understanding it and then accepting that might occur and when it comes about, it's less scary because you can almost see it come in anyway. And you just challenge it and you challenge it to the point at which it doesn't become a deep-seated belief that you carry with you every day of your life. As Tom heads into Tokyo, I wanted to know how well he's been able to do what Dr. Manley is describing, challenge his own doubts, and live with some of those feelings of imposter syndrome. I quite embrace it now because it keeps me on my toes. But that's as far as I use it. I now look at what I do. And I say, if it all comes to an end tomorrow, what will you be taking from it? And now I am able to look back at the results and the things I've achieved and go back to the 15-year-old me who did it all for fun 
training two or three times a week and say, wow, yeah, I, I was pretty good at that. And I earned that. It didn't happen overnight. I got here for a reason. And nobody can take that away from me or the record books now. And I can't wait to see what I achieve or where my life goes next because I didn't plan any of this. And I've ended up with three world records, six British records, world European Olympic finalists. If that wasn't planned, I can't wait to see where the next 10 years go. And that's kind of how I look at it now is you only feel that sort of imposter syndrome. You only feel like you shouldn't be there because of your desire to be there, I think, and the ambition that you have or your desire to be in that place, whatever that is. And there's a reason you're feeling that. If you take a step back for a moment and look at that, you've probably done far more than you realise. And there's probably plenty of people who look at you and go, I wish I could have done that. Or it's amazing how well they do at whatever they do. And they've got no idea that in your head, this is how you feel. And you can take assurance on that and keep plodding on. (laughs) Those three words from Tom seem like a great place to end. Keep plodding on. I hope you all found something useful in there. I especially like Tom's ABC goal setting strategy. Choosing an A goal that's a dream outcome, a B goal that you'd be happy with, and a C goal that, even if everything kind of goes wrong, you can be okay with. But beyond that, maybe you found some use in hearing how Tom was able to navigate imposter syndrome, or how he added more strings to his bow when his identity as an athlete began to consume him. Whatever you took from it, I hope you remember Tom's words at the end there. You're probably doing better than you think you are. Smarter, better, faster, stronger. We'll be back next week with another episode. So make sure to subscribe if you haven't, and please rate and review if you enjoyed this episode. Thanks to the Seaplane Armada team, Jessamine Molly and Justin Wright, for production, editing, and original music. Thank you to John Wilde, Sam Shuby, Jeff Gagnon, Ben Williams, and the whole team over there at GQ Sports for production. Thanks to you for listening. You can find me at Clay Skipper on Instagram or Clay underscore Skipper at GQ.com. Talk to you all next week. Thank you.